Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Hello and welcome to Magnified by Matt Cooper, a podcast project in which I get an opportunity to talk in more detail to my guests to put under the microscope their lives, their achievements, their interests. And today we're doing something a little bit different because we're talking to a retired diplomat. One of these people who has to do the work for our politicians in smoothing relationships over with other countries. And Bobby McDonough has served both as the Irish ambassador to the European Union and also as the Irish ambassador to the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And he has some fascinating insights and stories to tell of the work that has had to be done in that. And also his, since his retirement, his quite at times strident and controversial writings about the behaviour of Boris Johnson and various Brexiteers. Something that he's in a position to write knowledgeably about, given that he had the same academic route at third level as Boris Johnson. He'll tell you about that in this edition of Magnified. I'm Matt Cooper. Bobby McDonough, the reason that I've asked you to join me for Magnified with Matt Cooper is that I'm fascinated by the job that diplomats must have to do in dealing on behalf of Ireland with Britain and with the European Union, and particularly with Britain at present, given the way that its government is behaving and its civil servants are then required to act on its behalf. And you have been very trenchant in the way as a retired diplomat that you've been writing in the Guardian and in the Irish Times about these issues. So tell me, first of all, what actually is the role of the civil servant, the diplomat? And I ask this given that you spent a large part of your career dealing with the European Union on behalf of Ireland, but also were ambassador to Italy, but before that for a number of years uh, to the United Kingdom. What is the role? Well, first of all, Matt, uh, one of the reasons that I've remained involved in public debate, uh, perhaps the main reason is because I'm disturbed by the deterioration in British-Irish relations, uh, which had reached a high point with the Queen's visit to Ireland, and uh, also concerned about what's happening in the United Kingdom itself, because I've spent eight years of my life there, both as a student and as a diplomat, and many of my very closest friends are there, and uh, I have to say all of my closest friends are every bit as disturbed as I am by what's happening. Um, but what is the role of a diplomat? I suppose the first thing to say is that a diplomat, whether an ambassador or at more junior level, uh, is not an independent empire. Uh, a, a diplomat represents his or her government. Uh, so the policy that we carry forward, whether we're working at home on a major policy area like, like Northern Ireland or development policy or the European Union, whether we're abroad as a press officer or ambassador or whatever we're doing, we, we are reflecting government policy, and that is part of a democracy. Uh, you know, we're, we're, the people elect a government, the government determine policy. But having said that, of course, diplomats, whether posted at home or abroad, help to shape that policy, which is ultimately determined by politicians, uh, and rightly so, but they do so in deep engagement with their uh, officials, including, including diplomats. So... Uh, the first thing that diplomats can do other than simply imp implementing government policy is shaping that policy. Not by, um, if you like, going against what ultimately the government decides, but by being very open and frank and honest uh, 
in explaining what the options are and what their uh, the implications of each of the options are. And then the other thing, of course, is that a diplomat can uh, and must interpret the government's point of view because you don't get uh, detailed instructions every day, line by line, what you're to do and how you're to do it. You have a vast amount of um, flexibility and freedom as to, for example, if you're ambassador in London like I was, but the same would apply to other postings at other levels, uh, you have to decide what sort of contacts you're going to establish, what sort of you know, officials, politicians, journalists you're going to cultivate uh, in order to influence them on Irish policy. You have to decide what sort of um, engagement you'll have with the local Irish community. Uh, you have to decide how best to put forward the Irish government's point of view. And similarly, um, in quite a different job, working in Brussels as the ambassador to the European Union, uh, which, as you can imagine, is, is completely different because you're not operating primarily from an office. You're, you're spending most of your day in negotiations, um, you know, probably a good three days a week sitting around a table representing Ireland. So you have no business doing anything other than representing Ireland's interests as determined by the government. But in order to do that, you have to, uh, as well as trying to influence what that policy was in the first instance, you have to decide exactly how you are going to present the government's point of view most effectively, uh, what sort of alliances you're going to form. You know, it's not micromanaged from Dublin um, because it's simply impossible to micromanage all the detail of what's done on any diplomatic posting. It sounds like an intellectually fascinating job to have. How did you get into it? It's certainly intellectually fascinating. Uh, you know, it, it's um, it's humanly fascinating as well because you you get to, to see so many people, so many different uh, types of people. Uh, and it's not all intellectual, it's also practical. You have to look after visiting ministers, you have to help the local Irish community in different ways if you're on a bilateral posting. But certainly the the challenge of helping to shape Irish government policy in an area like I did for a long time on European Union policy is intellectually fascinating. And then when you're abroad negotiating, you have the extra dimension, which is you're dealing with other people and other countries and other interests. And I think it's probably, it would be hard to find a more interesting insight into how negotiations work than representing Ireland in Brussels, sitting around a table with now 27, it was 28, it was 15, 10, 12 at different times, um, on a vast, well, initially, you know, you're working on maybe one issue, depending if you're a junior diplomat in Brussels, uh, or travelling from Dublin for negotiations, but as you move up the system and you're the ambassador, you're dealing with, with a huge range of issues, um, uh, and, and um, trying to use Ireland's... Um, significant but limited negotiating ammunition as effectively as possible. A long-winded way to get around to saying how I got into it. Um, I uh, studied Latin and Greek at university, um, and I didn't want to be a teacher. Uh, but, of course, Latin and Greek teaches you to do anything. Um, and, uh, Sorry, but, in what way does Latin and Greek teach you to do anything? Well, I think that the nature of education, both at school and, and at third level, is, is to to give you the capacity to think clearly and to express yourself clearly. And, you know, it's not about learning facts. Uh, and that's why very often when, when somebody 
does a degree, say, in law, a lot of what they learn, they learn on the job because you're, you're, you're learning, it's, it's learning, it's getting a capacity to, to, to think and to express yourself. And I don't, I'm not of a school that says Latin and Greek is better than everything else and everybody has to do Latin and Greek, but I would certainly say that Latin and Greek is as good as anything else, as, both as a training at school and as a, as a, as a degree at university. Um, my dad had been a diplomat and so had my mother, but of course in those days my mother had to resign when she married my father. That was the so-called marriage ban. Was the it? marriage ban, yes, which was existed in many in many countries. So I was I was deeply conscious of what uh, a diplomat's life was like, uh, and it worked out for me. It can be difficult for children, but the postings we had were pleasant postings, and I had all of my secondary education at home. But strangely, maybe because I was a boy, <laughs> I didn't analyze the nature of diplomatic life. I just enjoyed it, and I didn't have a lifelong. Uh, ambition to become a diplomat. But when I found myself at the age of 23, 24 with a degree in Latin and Greek, uh, it was one option and I applied to the Department of Foreign Affairs and I got in. And again, I didn't see it then necessarily as a a lifelong commitment. I did, you know, when promotions were going slowly, I did think of doing uh, some other things. Um, But then things went well and I got, you know, interesting postings and, and, and they became more and more interesting. And I have absolutely no regrets about it but uh i just come an old story occurs to me you know because civil servants diplomats are civil servants you know they're they're often they're referred to as mandarins as if they're some sort of race apart but my dad always described himself as a civil servant when asked what he did and uh i i would do the same Uh, and apparently when i was uh about i don't know five or six somebody said to me what do you want to do when you grow up and i said I don't want to do anything. I just want to be an ordinary man like Daddy. And, uh, you know, I think in a way, it was when children are reading, reading children's books and they see pictures of nurses and doctors and farmers and so on, they don't see pictures of civil servants. And he, it, was a, it was an ordinary job, uh, but an ordinary job that was fascinating and a way to work for my country. And, of course, other people work in other ways for their country, but, but it was a privilege. One of our previous guests on this series is the Chief Executive of the Land Development Agency, John Coleman. And I did talk to him about the importance of public service because, as I put it to him, he could have earned far, could be earning far more money probably in the private sector than actually serving the state of the Land Development Agency. So did that ever motivate or tempt you, the possibility that I could imagine you would have been sought after in private business? Um I don't think there were many people seeking me. I, I, I did get one or two calls at, at various points, but uh, it, it was one of the factors. I mean, uh, you know, w- one of the factors was, of course, doing a job that was ex- inherently very interesting. Um, and I did on a few occasions have the opportunity of making a permanent career in the European institutions, which is, of course, also another way of serving the public. Uh, I was an official of the European Parliament. I did the competition to get in and I was a full-time official there for three years and... Uh, then I had a, the possibility of a promotion competition at home in the Department of Foreign Affairs and had a sort of dilemma because they're both very, very interesting things to do. Uh, and I suppose the main factor for Mary, my wife and I, was that we wanted our children to have a significant part of their education at home. Uh, but certainly working for Ireland uh, was one of the factors that, that led us to choose to come back. And, and similarly, I worked in the cabinets of a few of the Irish commissioners, and at that point I could have stayed on at a higher level, and we faced a similar question about what we would do, and the same factors you know, came into play. And while 
working for the European Commission or the European Parliament was you know, fascinating and worthwhile. Um, on balance, instinctively, on both occasions, we decided to come back to, to work for, for Ireland and to live in Ireland. Not, not always, of course. We spent a lot of time abroad. But our, our children had the great bulk of their education at home. That was really important. I want to talk about Boris Johnson, which leads me nicely to asking you where you studied Greek and Latin, because you wrote about this in The Guardian a few years ago. Uh, you had a similar career path for a while as Boris Johnson. Well, Boris is younger than I am, um, but we have three things in common. One is we both studied Latin and Greek at university. The second is that we both went to the same college at Oxford Balliol. It's one of about 30 colleges. And the third thing is that we were both presidents of the Oxford Union. Uh, the Oxford Union is not is sort of the, the strange conservative public school place that it's uh, certainly not when I was there that it's presented to be. The ethos was largely grammar school and and the majority were, were Labour rather than Conservative. So anyway, just explain what the Oxford Union is. So the Oxford Union is, I suppose, arguably you know, one of the most famous debating societies in the world. It goes back to the 19th century and a lot of, uh, you know, British politicians and prime ministers, uh, you know, Harold Macmillan and Gladstone and so on, had been presidents of the Oxford Union. So that if you're British, um, then it is uh, a step towards a political career. So Boris Johnson himself and people like Michael Gove and, and Yvette Cooper in the Labour Party and so on, you know, like lots of people have been involved uh, in the Oxford Union. It wasn't a stepping stone for me, it was just student fun. So what year were you the president there? Uh, 1974. How did an Irishman become president of the Oxford Union in 1974, which was at the height of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, and there was a significant anti-Irish prejudice present in Britain at the time? Well, I think there's a number of factors. Uh, I mean, (laughs) one thing is that Irish people are not easy to categorise. So, you know, I suppose even if the, 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 the dominant ethos, the prevailing ethos, was not public school... There were a lot of people from that sort of background at Oxford, and there were also a lot of people from a comprehensive school background. And the uh, the people from the public school background thought that, you know, as an Irish person, I must know, you know, Lord Roscommon and Lord Limerick or whatever. Um, and the some I, mean, I know I'm just characterising it here, but you know, some some of the because it was very left wing in those days. You know, Oxford was especially my college, and and some of those who had been to you know, a different sort of comprehensive background thought that, you know, I must be a supporter of the IRA and that sort of nonsense. Um, uh, whereas, like, English people, as you know, Matt, are very conscious of each other's backgrounds. You know, if you if an English person meets another English person, they're immediately trying to, I think, calculate what sort of school they went to and what their background is. Whereas an Irish person in that way that I described wasn't pigeon capable of being pigeonholed in the same way. But also, I must say that... You know, there is a fundamental decency uh, in, in the United Kingdom. And while I understand that a lot of people uh, in the Irish community suffered prejudice in those times, and some of them, of course, suffered it very badly when they were imprisoned for things that they weren't guilty of. Uh, but, you know, g- given the appalling crimes of the IRA and, 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 and planting bombs in public places... Uh, in Birmingham, for example. In that year. In that year. It was understandable that, that there was some hostility which was, of course, wrongly directed towards Irish people in general. But I have to say that in my four years at Oxford, I never suffered the slightest prejudice, no hostility at all. And that was despite the fact that I was quite uh, you know, open in my Irish nationalism, in my Catholicism. 
So, you know, th- there is a fundamental decency in the United Kingdom, which is has been hidden a little bit in recent years. It's still there. There are many f- wonderful people in the UK, but the sort of rise of English nationalism has concealed that a little bit. But my experience of Oxford was entirely positive. I mean, for example, there were many different college societies, and w- one of them used to meet once a term uh, called the Victorian Society, just to, to sing Victorian songs and drink wine just one evening per term. Uh, but I think, you know, when I was there, and my brother w- was at Oxford a few years before me, I think it was the first time that uh, they had heard uh, the, foggy, the Foggy Dew and uh, the Robert, Robert Emmett, Oh, Breathe Not His Name, sung at the Victorian Society. And there wasn't, that was, you know, totally accepted. It was, it, you know, that, you know, we, we know that the UK doesn't have a, 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 an uncheckered history. Uh, in in different ways and some of the things that it, it did in Ireland and subsequently and the empire. But there is also, uh, you know, a, a wonderful, modern, outward-looking, decent, tolerant Britain. But yet you must have seen the sense of entitlement that often comes in Oxford, particularly from those who are educated at their schools like Eton and Harrow, because there's a book I'm looking forward to reading by Simon Cooper, looking at particularly how the Boris Johnsons and various others who have been in power in Britain, David Cameron recently, all come from that very similar background. An extraordinary number from that private school, Oxbridge education that they get afterwards. What did you make of that sort of sense of, oh, how would I describe it, but entitlement that they might have had, and a sort of presumptuousness that they were the ones who should rule? That wasn't my experience of Oxford. I mean, there were, there were clearly um, more people uh, from public school at Oxford as they were at Cambridge, than the numbers of public school uh, graduates would have justified. Uh, of course, the education standards were extremely high in those schools, but at the same time, they were given a very big advantage in, in doing Oxford entrance exams. But, you know, uh, William Walgrave, who was a British minister uh, for, for a number of years, it was he who pointed out in his autobiography that when he was at Oxford a couple of years before me, uh, that, that the predominant ethos was one of grammar school. And that was my experience. Of course, there were many people who had been to public school, as there were who had been to all sorts of other schools. But uh, there was an explosion of, of creativity coming out of those grammar schools. I mean, for example, my, my closest friend at Oxford, who became later British ambassador both to Washington and to the European Union, uh, Nigel Scheinwald, he went to you know, a free grammar school in London. And in his class at school, he had Michael Portillo, uh, who later became a minister, Clive Anderson, you know, great media figure, uh, and you know, actors, and so on. this was in in just one grammar school class. And I, I think, um, uh, you know, so so yes, I mean, look, I have nothing against public school people. It's many, many of the people who've been to public school are absolutely charming, normal. Uh, I wouldn't particularly, you know, probably send my children to any sort of boarding school, but um, they shouldn't be, you know, all cast in in one light. Uh, and I just, I'd like to maybe complete a little anecdote that you were prompting me into there, which is that um, while I had a lot in common with Boris Johnson in terms of what I studied and where I studied it and so on, I did have to point out in The Guardian that there was one big difference between us, which was that I ceased being an undergraduate 50 years ago. <laughs> Do you think that he still has an awful lot of those traits, that he's not an entirely serious person, despite the great office that he holds? Yes, I do, and I, I think um, I, I don't think he really has any beliefs. Uh, I think he goes where his instant instinct takes him in terms of his own interests. I mean, we we know everybody knows it's acknowledged that uh, 
you know, immediately before he announced that he was going to campaign in favour of Brexit, he had two articles written. One was to defend staying in the European Union and, and the other was to leave. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, we can see it in a, you know, a lot of the decisions that are, he, he's taking that, that a lot of British people are deeply concerned about in terms of, uh, um, you know, respecting the ministerial code or you know, the attempt to exonerate Owen Paterson in Parliament or undermining the Electoral Commission or undermining Channel 4, you know, th th there doesn't seem to be um, an underlying sense of the values or the nature of democracy or British institutions. You wrote once in The Guardian a little anecdote which normally you would think, well, actually, that doesn't mean anything because it was about a time he didn't turn up to dinner with you, but you actually took something out of it which may be indicative of the type of personality that he is. This was when you were the ambassador in London and he was the mayor of London. Yes, it's, look, it's just a, a little anecdote, really, um, but maybe illustrative of something wider. I, I met him a couple of times. You know, he was, of course, perfectly charming. Um, you know, he has a, a particular charm, which he wouldn't have got where he is without having that charm. But I had invited him to a dinner and uh, a long time in advance on that on that morning his office phoned up just to check the time of the dinner and make sure everything was in order and then um, uh, a few minutes before the dinner was to start when people were having the pre-dinner drinks there was a phone call to my office to say that he wasn't going to come and uh, one of the other people at the at the dinner was in fact a relation of his and uh, I mentioned this to him and his relation said oh so that's just typical of Boris he accepts three different invitations and decides at the last minute which one to accept. So I, I'm not, I wouldn't build too much on that incident, but, uh, you know, it's maybe an, illustra an illustration of a, of a lack of seriousness. come back to Boris Johnson in a moment but I do want to ask you a little bit more about the British and our relations with them because you were our ambassador to Britain at a particularly good time in that relationship because you would have been very involved in helping the organisation of Queen Elizabeth's visit to Ireland back in 2011. Just how important and significant in retrospect do you think was the success of that visit? I think it was immensely important. I think it had a great impact in this country, not just that it took place, but that the Queen uh, behaved in such a dignified way and made such a wonderful speech at the dinner and the incredible act of reconciliation where she laid a wreath in honour of people who died for Irish freedom, effectively for the most part killing British soldiers. And the President the following day went with her to lay a wreath for Irish people who died in British uniform as an act of reconciliation. I think it was unique, not just in the history of these islands, but globally. Uh, so, I, I, and, and it, it had an impact in England as well. You know, uh, English people don't follow Ireland as closely as we follow what happens in the UK. But for months and months afterwards, whenever I mentioned the Queen's visit, 
at, at an event when I made lots of speeches, there would be a spontaneous round of applause. It was just that sense that British people had that... Well, I think a lot of British people don't understand Ireland very well. Um, they like Irish people, they like their Irish neighbours, which is really important. Um, and they know that there's some problem in the past. They know that we like beating them at rugby and soccer. They're not quite sure what it is. They know it's got nothing to do with the modern IRA. And I, my feeling after the Queen's visit was that they still didn't understand what the problem was, but they realised that it had been solved. So, but, but I would say it's really important also to emphasise that the Queen's visit didn't come out of the blue. I mean, the Queen's visit came out of three things, I think. First of all, the deep friendship between British and Irish people, that we get on. Uh, Irish, the Irish communities in England were constantly telling me, maybe you know, elderly people who came decades before I had been there, how much they liked their British neighbours and how warmly welcomed they were. That was number one. Uh, secondly was, of course, working together on the peace process. And thirdly, and possibly most, possibly most importantly of all, was working together in the European Union within the same shared structures with British and Irish officials getting to know each other, but also finding they had shared interests and being able to uh, advance them together. And, you know, the, the friendship by the time I came to London was remarkable. It was, it was David Cameron rather than Ireland who started the mantra that Britain exports more to Ireland than it does to China, India, South Africa, and Brazil uh, combined. And he had decided that Britain should develop a deeper bilateral relationship with three countries in the European Union, one of which was Ireland. And then you had David Cameron's you know, remarkable speech in the House of Commons after the Savile Report on Bloody Sunday came out. And I remember just a little incident, somebody said to my wife, uh, an Irish person living in London for years, that his teenage daughter at school, uh, one of her English fr friends had said to her, uh, I wish I were Irish, it's cool to be Irish. Again, it's just one little incident, but it was, it had become cool to be Irish. And I'll just give you one more e example. I, I used to help to organise meetings for Irish ministers and Taoiseach when they came over to London. Obviously, that was my job. And... Um, on one occasion, the Taoiseach was coming over to meet the British Prime Minister, and I was talking to the Cabinet Office the day before he was due over. And, uh, you know, I, we'd be talking about what the agenda items were, what order they'd be taken, how many people would be at the meeting, and so on. And he then inter interrupted himself and he said, Bobby, we're just having an internal meeting about this. Why didn't you come down and join us? So I went down to the Cabinet Office, and there were six or eight people sitting around a table, and there were a few people who had telephoned into the meeting. And so the preparation of the meeting took place in a uniquely uh, joint way. And I don't believe that would have happened with any other country or at any other time. There was that sort of level of trust that had developed between us. But yet you mentioned that they don't quite understand us. I wonder, do they quite understand anyone outside of their own island? And the reason I ask this now, at the time that this podcast will be uploaded, we'll have passed the Queen's Jubilee and past one of the controversies that's come up this week, the return of the imperial measure, which seems to be so important to as many, as a sign of sovereignty and of independence, and the lies that are actually been told that in some way that this had been blocked to them by the European Union. I mean, it'll be some shock to many of these people if they come to Ireland and discover that they can get a pint rather than a half litre of alcohol to drink. What is it about them, do you think, that they get so caught up with these legacies from the past and these traditions? Well, I think there's a number of factors. I mean, the, the first thing 
to say is, despite what I said earlier, there are, of course, many British people who understand Ireland very well. And, uh, you know, one thinks of people like John Major and Chris Patton and, and uh, you know, many of the top journalists and, and, uh, and Tony Blair and so on. Um, and then I think there's the natural uh, fact that if you live in a country with a large population and a very grand and imperial history, uh, you're less likely to understand a smaller neighbour uh, than vice versa. And it's not just true of Britain and Ireland, it's true of the United States and Canada, for example. I mean, I'm sure most Canadians know a lot about the ins and outs of the Biden administration, but I doubt if, if that applies in reverse. But I think there is a sort of special insularity among some British people. But I would emphasise some, because I think the high point of of Britain's internationalism was the London Olympics in 2012. Uh, you know, I was there for that as well. And it was such a wonderful celebration of internationalism and diversity with, you know, English people so proud of their country and cheering for athletes from all around the world and for people from different ethnic backgrounds in the UK. And, and that sort of, you know, internationalism, pride and confidence in their own culture is very strong. But there was another Britain then uh, which was more doubtful about foreigners, less confident about itself, uh, and which came to fruition on one day in 2016 in a referendum where, for various reasons, they found themselves with, with, with a majority. I, I don't think it would have happened necessarily if, if the referendum had been handled differently, but on one day that's what happened. So, so th there is a Britain that does even if it doesn't understand smaller countries so well, that really does want to engage with the wider world. But I think that more insular... Um, I remember once a British journalist said to me at a, at a briefing in, in Dublin, uh, he asked something about uh, Ireland participating in justice and home affairs in a way that, in the EU, that, the way that Britain doesn't. And I said, well, we are an island, but there are different ways of being insular. And I think like, the, the, mo the most introverted type of British person is heavily influenced by the tabloids because you know you mentioned that story about reintroducing imperial measurements and so on. It's a load of complete baloney and it's astonishing to me that any newspaper, and, and the Daily Mail is not actually the worst. Um, it can be pretty bad, but it does help to shape the, the news agenda. Uh, but it, running a front page story about saying that the, the European Union had banned the symbol of the crown on pint glasses is utter baloney. And so, you know, I'm an optimist by nature and I think Britain will come through its travails, but like, how, how can you have a democracy in which the people are so disrespected by parts of the media that they're, they're fed this complete nonsense? It's the media, but it's also their politicians. Isn't it? You wrote one fascinating piece a few years ago in which you used the phrase that there was a thought incinerator being implied, being applied by sections of the British political establishment and the media. Explain by what you meant by the phrase of, uh, what is it again? It's called a thought incinerator. Well, Matt, I'm getting old. I can't remember exactly what I was talking about then, but I'm sure it was true. Um, well, it was in the basis of that. It wasn't, you know, fake news. It was related yeah. to fake news that basically this deliberate dissemination of falsehoods to manipulate public opinion. But almost that they've hijacked things like fake news. It's just something that, no, actually it can be true. But we'll just label it fake news and just incinerate it 
and therefore what we say goes. Yeah, well, the, I mean, fake news is... Fake news is one way of putting it, but the sort of the negation that there is any truth in the world is one of the biggest challenges that we, we face. Uh, you know, you, you think of, for example, and it's not just in the UK, uh, you know, every country has its problems, but think of the United States where some of the Republicans say that the physical assault uh, on the Capitol in which some law enforcement officers were killed was just a form of political expression. Uh, or you think of President Trump saying that in order to address the problem of young children being killed in schools, Americans need more weapons. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a profound challenge for education systems everywhere and for parents uh, to help their children to discern not just what the truth is, but before that, that there actually is a truth. And, you know, clearly this is um, a problem in the UK uh, because while there are many, you know, outstanding uh, journalists in The Guardian, The Financial Times, Channel 4, the BBC, and so on. Uh, there's a lot of... Some politicians don't seem to care at all uh, about uh, truth. Uh, one sees it with many of those who, who, who defend Boris Johnson uh, and Boris Johnson himself. Uh, you know, they... Uh, they manufacture stories about the European Union. So the, bendy bananas. Boris Johnson's one of his most famous creations. This idea that you couldn't have a bendy banana, which again was a fiction. Look, but everybody knows it was a fiction. Boris Johnson was sacked from two jobs for telling lies, and he created a fictional Brussels, uh, which didn't exist. Who were banning prawn-flavored crisps and all this nonsense? But a lot of the the British media found that they could sell newspapers on that basis. But think, for example, of you know, members of the Conservative Party comparing the European Union to Nazi Germany and describing, you know, honourable members of the Conservative Party who took a different view on Brexit as traitors, even Winston Churchill's grandson. You know, it, it, it is, um, you know, it is possible to disagree legitimately on different issues with the UK, indeed, as it is within the European Union. But if the truth is simply regarded as a plaything, then there's a real problem. But what about also the deep underlying prejudices coming from modern generations? I mean, lots of people were completely shocked by Preeti Patel, for example, as the child of immigrants from Uganda, effectively talking about starving the Irish out at one stage during the Brexit negotiations. Then we see somebody like Liz Trust try to dismiss the issues in relation to the protocol as just some turnips in the trailers that farmers would be driving around the place. Where is this coming from in a modern generation? Yes, uh, again, I have to exonerate a large number of British people who, who don't share those sorts of prejudices at all. And I'm sure that within the Conservative Party also, uh, there are many, many people, I know there are, who, who would despise that sort of language. Well, then why aren't but, they speaking up? Well, that's another question. Um, uh, I mean, we, we are seeing trickles of people who are putting in letters uh, to the 1922 committee, uh, you know, calling for a leadership election in the Conservative Party. But it is a you know, one doesn't have an answer to that question because people are making a calculation, uh, I suppose, you know, when is the right moment to do it and also worried about their own political futures and having some sort of, you know, making a calculation about whether Boris Johnson will be able to uh, win another election. But it, it is a bit of a mystery because when you think of, you know, what's happening to British society 
you know, what, what I say may sound like, it may sound to some people as anti-British. It's not. It's profoundly pro-British. And the British diplomats that I worked with uh, over the years would agree with every single word that I say. Uh, so what I'm saying... But they have to serve the politicians because that's their job. They have to serve the politicians. The ones who are retired, of course, are, you know, in, in public debate do often criticise what, what the British government are up to. Uh, so it, it's, it's a pretty worrying situation. I think, you know, why do, why do people say such things like the, the, the quotations there? It, it's looking to their own leadership ambitions to an extent, not because the British public as a whole would approve of that sort of comment, but because the electorate for uh, leadership of the Conservative Party uh, is limited to members of the Conservative Party, which is a, a relatively small and narrowing ageing group. And normally two candidates will get into that uh, runoff if there is an election. And sort of playing to that base uh, clearly does appeal to, uh, to to some politicians, and it's very regrettable. But you've also written at length for The Guardian and for The Irish Times about what Britain did when it was part of the European Union. And you've argued very strongly that it actually had a disproportionately strong influence within the EU, despite all of the commentary in politics and media in Britain suggesting that they were been dictated to by Brussels bureaucrats. Tell us a little bit about that British influence when it was brought to bear, when yeah. they were still members of the European Union. Well, I think the first thing to say is, I wonder how many people in this country realise fully how the European Union negotiations work. I mean, many do, but I mean, do they realise, for example, that our permanent mission to the EU, our embassy to the EU, is, in terms of diplomats, at least four times larger than any other mission that we have? And that day in, day out, at every negotiation in Brussels, at every level, ministerial, ambassadorial, more junior level, uh, there are Irish officials sitting around the table shaping all the EU legislation and policies that are coming through. And while obviously we can't dictate those policies, we do, we do punch above our weight. Um, but in England, uh, in Britain, the, the lack of knowledge of the European Union was more extreme and was exploited by tabloids. I think a lot of British people think, thought and think that the, the legislation in the EU was dreamed up by Brussels bureaucrats rather than negotiated by the EU member states. Uh, much of the legislation to create the single market uh, was asked for by the UK, driven through by the UK. The UK uh, shaped every individual uh, legislative proposal and policy proposal that was coming through because it was a big country with a top-class diplomatic service. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, if you said to diplomats from all the other EU countries, or indeed ministers from the other EU countries, that the British had no influence in Europe. They would laugh at you because they knew very well what influence the UK had. Um, but Britain also shaped the overall direction of the European Union. If you think of a union enlarged to what it was, 28 member states, without some profound deepening, uh, you know, the completion of the internal market, this was all British policy. Uh, but I think the, the problem was partly, of course, the tabloid nonsense, but it was also maybe among some people a growing difficulty in understanding that negotiations involve compromise. And I think there was always a slight, slight problem for the UK in that because they had been a great empire. Uh, they had had one of the most remarkable empires the world had seen. And they had played a very noble role uh, during the Second World War. And to move into a union in which 
they could still have huge influence and far more influence, of course, than they would have outside it or will now have outside it, but nevertheless not a union to which it could dictate all the terms, was the opposite to the Irish experience because we were a little island that had been dominated by a large island. And when we found, when we joined the European Union, we found that we were, for the first time, part of a, part from the United Nations, which is sort of gentler, thinner sort of structure. But we were at the negotiating table, negotiating our future, treated as equals. You know, holding the presidency of the EU, where Irish Taoiseach were chairing meetings with Giscard and Mitterrand and Cole and so on. It was very good for our national psychology, whereas the British coming from, from an empire uh, found that difficult. And while most British diplomats and, and politicians, including Margaret Thatcher, um, you know, played the system with extreme efficiency and, and effectiveness from Britain's point of view, there was nevertheless this niggling thing that the tabloids could exploit, that somehow compromise was a bad thing. Whereas in fact, in the modern world, negotiation and compromise and multilateralism is the way to advance your interests. Playing to the lowest common denominator, also influenced particularly by some media moguls like the Rupert Murdochs and whatever. We won't get into that now, but I am fascinated by what is happening now. And we have all of this controversy about the Northern Ireland Protocol. And by the time we have this podcast uploaded, I don't think we'll have seen a solution to that particular issue either. It keeps flaring on a regular basis. Threats been issued by the British to sort of unilaterally walk away from an agreement, the uh, exit agreement signed with the European Union a few years ago. What do you make of the now trend of British ministers to say that what they're doing in relation to the protocol is motivated by their desire to save the Good Friday Agreement. Is that, again, fake news? Is that gaslighting? Is that cynicism that actually makes diplomacy all the more harder to implement? I think human motivation is mixed. I think, you know, very few people do anything in life that only has one motive. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, respect for the Good Friday Agreement is part of the psychological makeup of the current British government and of other politicians in the UK. Um, but in this case, I don't think it's the, it's, it's the dominant one because, of course, not only does the European Union, including Ireland, prioritise the Good Friday Agreement, but the protocol was negotiated by the European Union with, and the British with significant British input, including the British decision to treat Northern Ireland differently from the rest of the UK, was negotiated precisely to defend the Good Friday Agreement. And when it was negotiated, uh, the, the British proclaimed it as necessary to protect the Good Friday Agreement, and Boris Johnson won an election on that basis. So, you know, I, 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 I still have great respect for the UK, and I, I think, you know, th they, they are still concerned about the Good Friday Agreement, but I, can find, I, I find it quite unconvincing that this is any sort of justification for the way they're behaving, because... To put it mildly, the European Union's commitment to the Good Friday Agreement is at least equal, and the agreement that the European Union are 
are, are defending uh, was designed, including by the British, precisely to defend the Good Friday Agreement. What's needed, of course, is flexibility. You know, the European Union has shown flexibility. It's offered more flexibility in terms of how the protocol is, is applied, and Ireland very much supports that flexibility. I think a deal is possible. But what is extraordinary is that the British have are now threatening to change the entire game. So instead of negotiating in good faith the sort of flexibilities that are possible, they are claiming at a time when Putin is uh, you know, riding roughshod shot over international law that uh, they are going to do something similar. Of course, they're not making the mistake they made a few years ago with the Internal Market Bill of announcing publicly that they were going to break international law. But I think everyone pretty well understands that that's what they're, what they're at. And that's what's particularly, you know, galling and disturbing for, for the Irish government, for most Irish people and for the European Union. You know, in some strange way, the, uh, the decision of the British government to say that they want to negotiate with the EU, but they're threatening to blow the whole thing up, um, is, it echoes uh, the Republican motto of approaching politics with, uh, with, with an omelette in one hand and a ballot box in the other. I mean, of course, the situation is entirely different. And, 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 and you know, Britain was, with the Irish government, successive governments were, uh, you know, profoundly attached to peace in Northern Ireland and remain so. But the concept of um, negotiating on the protocol but threatening to override it is not dissimilar to the idea of approaching an election uh, to look for votes in a ballot box, but threatening a different way of dealing with it. It's, um, it's really quite shocking, especially at a time when international law is being threatened elsewhere in the world. You're retired now four years, but you're clearly still very intellectually engaged with all of this. Do you miss it? Do you miss actually being part of those discussions and negotiations, being in the room for it all? I don't, you know, I, I have a psychology that doesn't, if you like, look back and wish myself back to where I was before. Uh, I've been very lucky in life. I've enjoyed my, my upbringing. I enjoyed my years at Oxford. I've enjoyed every aspect of my diplomatic career. I was back in Rome on holidays recently. And when I was back in Rome, I said, wow, you know, I was so lucky to be here before. But I, you know, I, I, I've never wanted to go back and do the things I did before. I'm now... Uh, doing all sorts of other things. I'm an executive coach. I've um, taken up art as a hobby. I've taken up cooking as a hobby. Uh, I'm involved a little bit in the media. So no, I'm not. I'm not anxious to get back. Indeed, I sort of. I suppose, like a lot of people of my age, I'm. You know, I'm wondering, am I, if, if you like, too much anxious and involved in all these things that I was involved in before? But no, I'm. I'm. I'm relatively comfortable. But I think as as I grow older, I, I know I shouldn't talk. People shouldn't talk about growing older. But I think. Uh, you know, gradually over some years, I'll probably uh, move on a bit more to my other hobbies. OK, but then let me take that question almost on the flip side of it. Are you enjoying the fact that being retired now allows you to be outspoken and public in your views about these major political issues? Absolutely, yes, yes. I mean, I feel, uh, you know, Irish diplomats and, and, and ministers, you know, even if they, say Simon Coveney sometimes rightly speaks harshly about the British government's approach, they have to be diplomatic, uh, and I don't have to be diplomatic. Uh, I, I have to be honest, I have to be courteous, I have to prioritise the need to try and maintain, insofar as possible, British-Irish friendship. But I do feel a certain liberation, and I think uh, some of my, current, my former colleagues who are still working, uh, uh, you know, 
probably sympathise with a very great deal of what I say. But of course they don't uh, tell me to say it uh, and they don't say it themselves uh, and rightly not because you, know, you have to keep the channels open to the UK. Um, and I, I don't, if you like, take my briefings from my house in any way. Uh, I rarely, I speak to my good friends there, but I don't do it with a view to, um, to uh, you know, developing the detail of my thinking in relation to these things. Uh, so, yeah, no, the answer to your question is I do enjoy that freedom. One thing I want to finish with, and which I hadn't planned to, but it has just struck me on the basis of the conversation that we're having. In the last week or so, Taoiseach Michal Martin has spoke about a citizens' assembly in relation to the issue of neutrality. And what do you think does the rest of the European Union make of our neutrality at this stage, given the conversations that you would have had about ever-strengthening union in the European Union, uh, over your decades involved as a diplomat, as things have developed, and now that we have this threat from Russia to the European Union, do you think is that going to make the discussion at least about neutrality in Ireland a more urgent one? And how would you see that developing? I think our partners in the European Union um, understand Irish neutrality well, at least insofar as we understand it ourselves. And, you know, I don't think... Ireland is going to come under pressure to abandon its neutrality from our EU partners. I think it's a debate that we have to develop for ourselves. I think there's you know, there's a, a lot of empathy for Ireland, as we saw in relation to Brexit. Uh, there's an awareness that we have played our part in relation to refugees in general, and specifically in relation to Ukrainian refugees. I think the debate about neutrality is one that we have to have for ourselves. And you know, clearly... Uh, the idea of us spending more on our own defence, quite apart from neutrality, it seems to be moving forward. The idea that we couldn't even monitor Russian ships in our waters and the cyber attack on the HSE uh, are examples of why we need to take our own defence seriously. Um, it doesn't appear as though joining NATO is going to be uh, on the agenda for any foreseeable future. But I think we need to consider our role in relation to Europe in a way that doesn't end our neutrality. And one of those ways, for example, has been evident in relation to Ukraine, where the EU has supplied, it, supplied significant funding to purchasing weapons for Ukraine. And while Ireland's monetary contribution to that went through a, a different fund for non-lethal equipment, we gave our full contribution to the entire amount through that non-lethal thing. And I think the fact that the Irish public not only accept that, but welcome that, is a sign of how thinking is evolving here. Uh, and I think, you know, so yes, we will spend more on our own defence. I think we will look more closely at how we interact with our partners in the European Union. I don't think that membership of NATO is going to be seriously considered for quite a while. But I think it is worth saying that the reason that, uh, the main reason that, Na that membership of NATO is on the long finger, if ever we get around to it, is because of our geography. It's not because we're more morally decent, for example, than the Finns and the Swedes, sometimes, uh, who are both going to join NATO. You know, sometimes we, we, we see neutrality as uh, a badge of particular decency. And there is a good case for Irish neutrality, and we have done good things in the world, but so have uh, Sweden and Finland, and indeed countries like Denmark and Norway that are already parts of NATO, part of NATO. So I think the difference with us is that we have, we've been very unfortunate with our geography and history to be dominated by a large island that didn't treat us very well. But uh, we're very f fortunate now 
to have a geography that means that the threats to Ireland uh, are ones that would have to pass through other countries that are better armed and part of a military alliance. So Bobby, there's just one other thing I want to ask you about because you talked about taking up art and you've taken up cooking since you retired, but you've also decided to turn your hand to being a thriller writer. Tell us about this. Well, Matt, I, uh, I did. I, I suppose um, you spent a lot of your life as a diplomat writing and using words. And my wife said to me many years ago when I was talking, I might write a, a novel or a thriller. She said, if the minister instructed you to write a thriller within three weeks, you'd do it. Anyway, when I reached retirement, I thought I'd see whether the sort of skills such as they are in using words could be applied to fiction. So I wrote a thriller uh, which hasn't yet been published. I have a very good agent. Um, and I suppose the quirky thing about it is that it's a serial killer in London and there are many witnesses to each of the killings, but all of the witnesses are under the age of six um, because it happens in, in schools. So that's the, if you like, the unusual thing about it that the police have to interview the witnesses but also have to use uh, play therapy and child therapy and so on to ascertain what the children are trying to tell them so thanks for asking the question and if there are any uh, publishers out there let me know where did the idea for that come from that's an interesting question um i'll tell you what i did i i had this notion that i'd like to write a thriller and uh, my wife who is my greatest uh, source of encouragement and advice she sort of starts off by believing that I can't do things and that sort of encourages me to, to do it so I sat down literally in front of a blank page and my only idea when I started writing was this idea that the witnesses were going to be very young and you'd have to find some way of interviewing them so I just started with started with a blank page and uh, when I had written the first maybe half page a couple of paragraphs I showed it to my wife and she looked at it, and as I say, she's my greatest critic, and she looked at it and she said, hmm, that's not bad. So that encouraged me, and I just kept going, and then the story evolved in my head as I went on. So you're looking for a publisher at this stage for it, and if you get that, do you see a new career for yourself in crime fiction? Well, when I was still working and looking ahead to retirement, I suppose I, I did fancy the idea of writing some thrillers, um, but it seems for the moment to have... Uh, run into a brick wall is too strong a thing because I still have a very good agent. Uh, but yeah, sure. I mean, if, if it's published, uh, then I'd love to do some more. Bobby McDonough, thank you so much for taking the time for joining me here on Magnified with Matt Cooper. A real pleasure, Matt. So we hope you enjoyed Magnified by Matt Cooper with Bobby McDonough, the former ambassador for Ireland to the UK and also to the European Union. And of course, aspiring thriller writer as well. There are plenty of other editions in the Magnified series for you to enjoy. For example, we had Donald Slattery, the aviation boss, last week. We've had Neil Francis, the former rugby international turned columnist who's gotten himself in bother at times, but who has now bounced back with a new job in the Sunday Times. The drone creator, Bobby Healy, and also Anya Kerr from Kinzen, the disinformation specialist, and many others too that are there, available for you to listen to, and more to come in the weeks to follow. So thank you for being with us. Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG, the family-friendly electric range. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul.